I was getting really honestly angry about teachers just taking on all this new content, quote unquote diverse content, and then all this harm being done in the classroom, whether it's slavery enactment as part of the requirements to get your credentials, especially in California. Uh, it can't be just a one-off class of the quote unquote diversity class that we take in our teacher training. I'm starting to get hot. I'm starting to get super passionate about this work. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is All the Above, a show where we look at recent headlines in education and dive deep into some critical issues impacting our schools because we know, like you know, that mainstream media outlets don't give education very much attention at all. So we are here to bring some of that attention and have these important discussions. Now, Jeff, I noticed that on the right side of you, there is a very beautiful agenda written up of all the great things that we are going to cover in this episode. That's right. However, I also acknowledge that a lot of folks are quite busy and they listen to the audio versions as they do their workouts or drive to and from work so they don't quite see that agenda. So we hope that the audio listeners do make sure that they rate us and review us and um, let other folks know about this lovely podcast. But if you are watching on YouTube and you see the lovely agenda, Check to see that you've hit that subscribe button because that matters a lot. We're trying to get those numbers up. So, Jeff, for the folks that don't see the lovely agenda there, um, what is on today's agenda? Well, man, well, we got a good one today. As usual, uh, we're going to be starting off with our do now. We got some fascinating, just some some really interesting uh, headlines in education we're going to dig into. Uh, we got some some people to talk about today. Mm. And uh, for our main segment, we have a seminar with a truly fascinating guest. I, yeah, like I super dope. I hesitate. Exactly. I hesitate to throw this word around lightly, but I'm going to say it. She's dope. The conversation yeah. is going to be dope. You definitely want to stick around and check it out. We're going to be talking about the, the issue of teachers doing identity work uh, in our practice as educators and the importance of teachers doing their own identity work as a part of either interrupting or working to perpetuate intentionally or unintentionally, some of the systems of oppression and systems of inequity that, that play themselves out in classrooms and schools across the country. So uh, we are excited uh, to get into this conversation today. You definitely want to check it out with us. All right. But at first, let's take a look at some recent headlines in education, particularly some stories that you might have missed. All right, folks, now it's time for our do now. Jeff, do you know that most of our audience are educators who are very, very busy because they do transformative work in education. And sometimes things happen in education that they might miss because they're so focused on the students in their classrooms and the students in the schools that they're serving. So um, how about we look at some headlines that are important but might have been missed by some of these great educators who watch our show? Sounds like a great plan to me. All right, let's, let's do a do, do now. How, yeah. are we, how are we gonna do the do now today? Well, Manuel, uh, you know, of course, attendance is the most fundamental aspect of any education. Can't learn if you're not there. 
So we're gonna uh, go. School just wants money. School just wants money. That's, that's all they care about. That's what you is. want me here because you get paid off. Just bust them in and turn them out. Is that, is that what you're saying? No, we uh, we believe in attendance uh, here do. on all the above, uh, Manuel. And uh, so today we got a roll call. All right. We'll see who's in the house. Roll call. Let's do it. All right. First up, today. Uh, oh, you know what, Manuel? I forgot. Actually... To get this name, I'm gonna need you to pay your fee. It's gonna be it's gonna be forty seven cents actually. Forty seven cents. Forty seven exactly. To get, I mean, it's, it's twenty twenty. Jeff, who goes around carrying change? I don't have forty seven. I don't. I don't have no, um, no dice. Can I pay with Apple Pay or Venmo? Can I Venmo you the forty seven exact cents? change? I want two Lincolns, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I can't remember what the rest is. Who's on what coins? All them presidents. But definitely two Lincolns. Um, yeah, so uh, forty-seven cents is mm-hmm. what uh, not only will it cost you, Manuel, to get a uh-huh. name, but it would cost any of the fancy colleges around the country who are paying the college board to get names of students that they can reach out uh-huh. to as a part of a larger effort to make their schools increasingly more selective. Right. So mm. uh, there was recently a report by the Wall Street Journal. Um, profiling some behavior of the college board uh, that some folks might find suspect. Um, And it turns out that uh, most of the elite universities around the country are paying the 47 cents to the college board to get the names of students. What they then do is figure out students who are maybe marginally competitive applicants to their schools. They reach out to those folks with, you know, targeted advertisements and mailings, and they encourage those folks to apply. Now, of course, we know that the more people that apply to your school, uh, that just really makes your school more exclusive because most colleges around the country are remaining relatively stable in size in terms of their incoming first year class. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get more applicants, the size of the class stays the same. And now all of a sudden we're only admitting, you know, 10% or 5% or, you know, that sort of thing of our applicants. And uh, in some of the more popular ranking systems, US News and World Report, and uh, you know, what colleges brag about on their websites, they're touting their exclusivity as a sign of their quality and strength as an institution. So, Interesting profile coming out in the Wall Street Journal uh, there, Manuel. Tell us what you think yeah. about this. This is wild. So we we call this a scam, where I'm from. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> where, in this case, you are purchasing names to send them information and entice them into applying just so that you can inflate your numbers, cook the books, and climb up in the rankings. Um, they're scamming these kids, as far as I'm concerned, um, especially the kids who are who are paying good money for these applications to be submitted. Cause you know, submitting an application, you know, you have to pay that application fee and it might be upwards of a hundred dollars or more depending on the, on, the, yeah. on the school. So for the universities to encourage students who they know are marginally competitive to get in and most likely aren't gonna get in, but to encourage them to apply, to go through that whole process and pay the money and do all that just so that they can inflate the number of how many people applied and use that to boost their selectivity percentage or whatever, so that hopefully their rankings in U.S. News and World Report uh, make it edge out their their other elite competitors. I mean, that's just that's they're scamming these kids and they're finessing the rankings. The, I don't know if to be more upset with the rankings and how it's set up and how um, 
you know, most of this does not reflect necessarily the quality of education a student is going to get at any university because there's so many variables that go into that beyond, you know, the ones measured in these uh, rankings. So I don't know if to be more upset with the ranking system or the universities for, I, I'm, I'm more upset at the universities, but uh, <laughs> okay. universities for enticing students to apply who they know they don't actually care about or College Board for allowing this to happen and selling the names and, you know, I can only assume knowing that these names are being sold for these purposes. Lots of folks to be mad at. What do you think? Yeah, so I, I think I share most of your sense of outrage, right? Mm -hmm. Like you see this, it just it's shady on its face, right? right. Like there's not a, a, a beautifully um, benign aspect to this system, there's not. right? Um, like, why is the college board charging for these names? Right. Why are universities in the business of trying to, you know, sort of cook the books, as you as you mentioned, to make themselves appear more exclusive? Right. Like, who wins from that? It's not students because, you know, a, a college only has a thousand seats, let's say, in their incoming class. They're only going to admit a thousand people, whether 20,000 apply or whether right. 10,000 apply. And those other 10,000 new applicants are just throwing $75 or $100 down the drain, right? right. Um, so it, it rings of like um, a system that makes the prestige of colleges feel elevated. It yeah. brings in some small amount of revenue to, or maybe more than a small amount, but some right. amount of revenue to the college board and does nothing for students at all, right? right. Uh, so I... I share your outrage on that front. I feel like I there's a say, butt coming, though. So, well, here's where I think we need to be just balanced on, on what we're okay. saying, right? So, students do opt in to participating uh, in this system. So, it's not like a, you know, a situation where, you know, there's a, a seven-page terms and conditions agreement and you just have to right. hit, I agree, and it's full legalese that no one understands. There is an opt-in so you have to take an affirmative step to say, yes, I want my information shared with colleges, right? right. Um, the college board charges 47 cents. Now this, this is 47 cents times several million students each year whose yeah. information is being shared. So this is generating somewhere you know, over a million dollars of revenue. But when you think about the costs maybe associated for the college board for doing this, it may or may not actually be revenue generating for them. Right. Um, so, you know, just, just to be fair, I think that that's important to note. Um, but I think on the balance, this is one of those things where, um, you know, the, the system has a set of incentives in place for schools and the college board to behave in a certain way. And the outcome of that system for kids is no greater opportunity, no greater Correct. resources available for college. Correct. Uh, you know, more and more counselors at high schools having to do more and more work that is maybe not going to produce and better teachers writing those wrecks. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so doesn't strike me as something that's built for educators or for kids at all. I'm just thinking yeah. about the kids that get that brochure or get that, you know, whatever from this elite university and think like, oh, I didn't think I had a shot. And they, they you know, and, I mean, as a as a student, I would feel really great about getting a mailing from an elite university and, you know, all the work that they put into their application when in reality, the university is pretty, pretty sure that this kid doesn't have a chance. That's just yeah. like, uh, it's just the, the emotional yeah. um, toll right there is also something to be um, considered. There's, there's yes. some shadiness involved. This is trash, man. This is trash. All right, let's get another name going. All right. I don't like this one. Next up, Next up. for our roll call. Ah. We have Black Doogie Hauser. Mm, nice. I used to, I used to love that show. 
Uh-huh. And, uh, Do you remember a, Black Doogie Howser? There, there was no Black Doogie. I remember White Doogie Howser. So you don't know Black Doogie Howser. Don't know Black Doogie Howser. Yeah, that's because yeah. Black Doogie Howser was not identified for a gifted and talented education as a child because of the racial bias mm. that is implicit in referencing or uh, recommending kids for gifted programs. So Black Doogie Howser never got that um, identification and therefore his whole his whole trajectory was different. He didn't end up having these services that led him to medical school and he didn't end up being an MD writing in his little journal at the end of each episode. So let's talk about it. Gifted and talented education, Jeff. I don't know if you know, but um, it's fraught with um, challenges when it comes to identifying the students. So affluent elementary school students are much more likely to be admitted into gifted and talented programs than their peers in lower socioeconomic brackets, according to a new study published in the Harvard Educational Review. Co-authors Jason A. Grissom, Christopher Redding, and Joshua F. Bleiberg analyzed nationally representative longitudinal data and found that gaps in the receipt of gifted services between the highest and lowest SES students are profound. And these gaps remain substantial even after taking into account students' achievement levels and other background factors. It's not just about the money. Race also plays a part as the gifted programs are made up of mostly white students. So districts across the country are grappling with the problem of inequity within their gifted programs. Jeff, what do you think about this? Any? Yeah, I have a whole lot of feelings and they are a big, complicated, uh, un- unsorted out mess. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm going to try to do my best here. Okay. Uh, I think on the identification front, mm-hmm. um, we, the system is certainly fraught with problems as, right. as you have, have noted. And, this has been the case for decades and decades and decades, oh, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we have uh, pretty much since the beginning of the of this idea of having gifted education had a set of systems and constraints around that that have been deeply racist, deeply classist, and both at the same time, right? Right? Um, and I think in in certainly at least in earlier decades of this also tended to. Uh, produce outcomes that identified boys more than girls, mm-hmm. although I believe that has changed nationally now. Um, so I think we have a lot of, of work to do, and there is, a, uh, in general, a great deal of momentum nationally mm-hmm. around trying to fix these identification issues, right? right. So districts across the country, um, New York City, places like Mankato in Minnesota, um, places like uh, Los Angeles, whole bunch of districts, big and small across the country, have changed either to go to things like universal screening, so we're going to screen all the students, or addressing racial bias in, uh, in the identification metrics, right. or diversifying what those metrics are so it's not just a test, right? So there's a lot of things we can do that actually produce different, more, um, more representative outcomes that reflect actually the strengths of kids from all communities, which is important. That said, I will say the larger question of like, should we have gifted and talented programs yeah. or, um, you know, highly capable cohort programs, um, uh, as they are called in some places, remains this kind of like deeper existential question. Yeah. I totally get the arguments against it. I also know as a personal beneficiary mm-hmm. of a gifted and talented magnet program as, a, as an elementary school student that completely changed my academic trajectory as a student and that I 
I know, even as a later high school student, mm -hmm. having intentionally stepped out of my IB and AP classes at a certain point in my education, saying I want to take some classes that were more reflective of my peer group, right, right, uh, right. meaning more diverse, frankly. Um, I wanted to be in classes with some of my friends. Um, the, uh, for me, I know that I would have had a very different educational experience had I not been in that, uh, in that gifted and talented track, right? And that I was challenged and pushed and grew in ways that I would not have in another context. And I, and I wonder about kids like me uh, who are sitting in classes today. And if we say we're gonna just get rid of these programs, what does that mean for the outcomes for some of our, some of our students? Yeah, so Seattle is one place where they're looking at um, phasing out their highly capable cohort program. The superintendent, Denise Juno is pushing to end that because it's a program where the highly capable cohort is 67% white, but um, across the district, only 47% of the overall student population is. Um, so I'm more along the lines of, I think this is similar to going back to the SAT discussion that we've had a few times, uh, dismantling the whole thing um, based on the fact that it's, it's reflective of so many oppressive systems um, when it comes to race and class and, and like you said, the history of uh, gender um, discrimination when it comes to identifying students for these programs. And part of me, the educator who's thinking about educational justice and education for liberation, part of me is thinking, well, why can't, whatever the gifted students are getting, like, why can't that be designed also for the other students? So I also was an identified gate student uh, since elementary school, and I remember, and I'm, I need to look into this, I don't know how I would find this answer, but I remember in one particular year in elementary school, um, we started at different times of the day based off of whatever was going on. So there was the early birds and the late birds, and the early birds started school earlier and got out earlier, and the late birds started later and got out later. And as I, like years after the fact, looking back at who was in the early bird group and who was in the late bird group, it became pretty clear to me that like the early bird group were myself and a whole bunch of other folks that you, I guess, could identify as high achieving, perhaps gifted students. And the late bird group was, was not that. And it just seemed like from so early on, we were being identified as like the students worthy of all this extra attention and enrichment and the students who aren't going to get that. And of course, maybe the late birds were getting extra supports to help them, I don't know, whatever, catch up in whatever areas that um, their achievement was lacking as compared to us. But it just seems like there are so many different ways that students are, are tracked. Whether you look at gifted and talented education, whether you look at IB and AP, whether you look at just you know school choice even, um, there's so many different ways that students are told early on like whose education is worth something and going somewhere and whose isn't. And to me, the, the gifted part of it is just, is just one part of it. And it just reflects all these ongoing oppressive systems in our society. And until we just dismantle the whole thing, It'll just keep going. But of course, how do you dismantle the whole thing? What about the kids who are in there now? What about, you know, the benefits that you receive from it? I receive benefits, of course, also from being in AP classes and all that. So I understand the, it's not feasible, I guess, but well, burn the whole thing here, now. Here's where it gets like morally complicated for me mm -hmm. because I, in general, tend to be a more like kind of collectivist minded person right. and feel like, you know, things that are public goods that we all use, you know, we take good care of and we should treat education that way, right? right? Um, and that's why public education is very important. And in, 
any other context in life, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's dance class or football or you know um, the the uh, the spelling bee or yeah. like any sort of other activity that we're doing with kids, we tend to group kids into different like uh, levels of sort of rigor yeah. and competition, right? Yeah, that's very um, true. And no one says that like it's it's harmful to have a varsity basketball team and a JV basketball team and a ninth grade basketball team, right? right? Now, maybe some of that is because we assume that like there's a there's an ac accessible progression of development and kids can move along the continuum over time, right? right? But um, but no one says that like having a varsity team is oppressive to the kids who did not make the varsity team, right? So maybe there's a maybe there's a moral examination of that right. that we could do on another episode. Yeah. Um, but I, I there's just something about the idea that like we should get rid of gifted and talented programs that I know for my own education would have resulted in a more negative outcome for that me, is for yeah. sure. Right. And that makes it hard for me to say that like these programs are harmful. I also know that the status quo is doing harm to plenty of people. Right. right. And like we got to figure this out. I just don't know what to do about it exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't either i won't pretend to know yeah it's just it's yeah it's just so troublesome thinking about all the black doobie housers out there that didn't get a chance yeah. because of you know racism and all that yeah all right man all right so that's two stories that i'm I not feel like that's about. that's the answer to like half of what we talk about on this show like racism and all that pretty much uh so <laughs> but you know the more you talk about race jeff it just keeps the racism going you just got it that's true. Gotta You're, stop talking about it. Hashtag reverse racism. Indeed. Yes. Okay. Uh, our next up, final roll call for today, man. Well, right, I think name. I think this is going to be someone you you know deeply. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Casey Crossweight. Ooh. Um, never heard of that name. Yeah, in my exactly. life. But I could only assume he's a uh, perhaps a he or she or um, they are the transformative educator who cares very deeply about the health and wellness of our students. I, you, I'm, according to the company website, you're basically correct. So, nice. uh, KC happens to be the new CEO of Jewel. Uh, Jewel, oh. this is J-U-U-L, the company mm. people probably have come to know as the uh, sort of dominant player in the vaping industry. Mm. Okay? Um, and KC and his company could be mm -hmm. looking at billions of dollars in damages, potentially, if a flurry of new lawsuits prevail against the company. So why this is relevant to all the above in our conversation mm -hmm. is that in a recent LA Times article uh, by Howard Bloom, it was reported that uh, Los Angeles Unified School District, the nation's second largest school district, um, and the state's largest school district, mm -hmm. um, that serves about 600,000 students, this is a massive entity, right. has filed a class action suit against the vaping manufacturer um, and in their litigation they are seeking unspecified compensation to the school district for financial harms and punitive damages also the lawsuit petitions the court to allow los angeles unified's suit to be a vehicle for school systems across the state to receive compensation from jewel now, behind this um, is, you know, maybe some details that a lot of people might not know about. So, uh, Superintendent of LA Unified, Austin Butner, said the use of Juul electronic cigarette devices has led to violence on our campuses, and we have had to divert dollars away from classroom instruction and instead spend it on counseling and programs to help inform students of the dangers of vaping. 
So if we think about things like, uh, you know, additional suspensions, uh, police interactions with students on campus, right. time spent by administrators, time spent calling in parents because kids are smoking, yeah. you know, nicotine pods or marijuana laced pods. Um, a whole host of, uh, of new work that the district is having to attend to because of the intentional behaviors of this vaping industry. So, right. now, well, uh, what is your take here? I'm very curious, especially as someone who, you know, interacts with students every day. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, first of all, I'm not an educational legal expert. I took one education law class with the late, great Stuart Beagle. Rest in peace. Um, so, you know, in terms of the litigation itself, I'm really curious about it. There's a lot that I don't know about what um, similar cases have happened in the past around schools going after a particular company whose product has had an effect on the students in those schools. So, you know, I'm, I look at this and I'm thinking if this litigation were successful for LA Unified, what would that do for the future potential uh, cases. So I'm thinking about, well, what about if a school district wants to go after iPhone because of the distraction that all the apps and all that stuff, or go after Snapchat or whatever. So I'm just, I'm curious on one level about the idea of a school going after a major company when I'm sure the company could, you know, defend itself by saying that its products aren't for anyone under 18 and they don't, you know, condone their products being used at school or whatever. But as a teacher teaching in the era of vaping, then for sure, I've had students of my own who've uh, been suspended from school for having vaping materials on them or being caught in the restroom vaping. I've talked to other teachers in other school districts, and it just seems to be becoming an increasingly uh, big problem. And you look at what flavors are offered in these you know, nicotine pods or whatever you want to call them, and it's like, well, damn, no wonder kids are all over them. It sounds delicious. I mean, we are talking about mango, cream, uh, cucumber pods, and the company is saying it's going to suspend the sales of those. But why the hell did you have mango flavored yeah. pods in the first place? Unless it was to target young people and young people are spending the big chunk of their time at schools. So of course, there's going to be impact on schools and schools are having to divert all this resource and attention to trying to deal with that. So it totally makes sense for LA Unified to go after the company. I'm just curious on yeah. what precedent that sets for other major companies whose products are having an effect on teens' daily lives. Yeah, so that's an interesting question, and here's why I don't care about it even slightly, okay? <laughs> so what people should know is that behind uh, this company, Juul, mm -hmm. is another company called Altria Group. Okay. That sounds perfectly. It almost sounds like altruistic. altruism, right? Nice. It sounds happy and positive. Oh, that's great. Because I was it's, worried. It must be like a collection of grandparents from yeah. a small town somewhere well, who like, good, who I, like I do was bake sales yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, you know walk in the five k to raise nice. money for the t ball team. Good old right? mama pop. Yeah, Altria okay, Group nice. sounds great. You know who Altria Group is? They're not. Philip Morris, no. the same company uh -huh. that brought you, you know, Marlboro's, or maybe that was uh -huh. Reynolds or one of the other companies. What? But you know who you are, Altria yeah. Group, and these people are some of the most wicked corporate actors Absolutely. out there, right? Absolutely. So Altria Group uh, acquired a 35% stake uh, in Jewel Labs for a total of $12.8 billion. Yeah. Now, in my head, I can't quickly do the math to tell you um, what number 12.8 is 35% of, but it's many, many, many billions of That's dollars, a lot of numbers, right? It's like $40 billion, right. okay? Um, 
that this company is worth intentionally mm. selling mango and cucumber cream flavored yeah. pods Sounds to delicious, young though. people that they have built an industry on addicting and yeah. keeping as, as customers, right? Yep. This is this is corporate flashy Silicon Valley like street corner hustling. Yeah. Right? Like these dudes do the same thing that your average heroin dealer does. Oh, yeah. Right? To lure in clients and keep them coming. Yep. Right? And literally addicting them with stuff that they know is addictive and they're making highly attractive as addictive because it's not dirty. Right. Like, you know, it's not going to make your lungs full of black stuff yeah. and tar like we've seen the videos of online, right? But people just mysteriously keel over and die right. from using this product, right? And getting pneumonia and all kinds of stuff. So uh, I have no sympathy whatsoever. I don't that, have sympathy. That was an interesting intellectual exercise you I'm, posed. Yeah. But we can come back to that some other time. Right. In the meanwhile, I'm... I'm ready to write an amicus brief myself on behalf of uh, LAUSD. And My let's, man's fired let's up. Let's go get some billions from Jewel. My man's fired up. Yes. No, I, I hear yes. you. And, you know, we looked at their uh, website and their organizational structure. And it's uh, a lot of bros, a lot of bros at that company who yeah, who likely don't care two bits about the uh, young people in our classrooms. Yeah. And, in fact, only see them as opportunity for raising revenue and all of that. So, for sure, I hope the company pays and goes down. Yeah. Uh, yeah for, and as, sure. as someone who works with school administrators, the amount of time that has uh, this this vaping issue can mm -hmm. suck up among school administration that could right. be spent meeting with parents and you yeah. know uh, addressing community relations, meeting with teachers, observing classrooms, coaching teachers, right? They get spent on who's secretly getting high in which corner of the school that we can't identify anymore because you can't smell it, yeah. right, um, is is a problem, right? Not to mention the actual physical health risks that are coming to all the young people because of this, right? Like, this is the same industry that did this to our parents and our grandparents yeah. is now doing it to the kids, and I have no sympathy for them whatsoever. Uh, whoever the attorneys are at LAUSD, if you guys need like a, you know, you need somebody <laughs> to cook dinner, you need a, a neck massage or something like, I got you. Nice. Let's go get our billions. Man, yes. nice. Man, so we got Jewel hustling. We got these elite colleges hustling. Meanwhile, Black Doogie Hauser, man, he's just trying to make it, man. He's just yeah. trying to make it. Yeah. All right. That's it for today's warm up, folks. Um, I think we need some sort of like a, a healing conversation. So I'm looking forward to the seminar discussion yeah. uh, with our guest because she brings so much dopeness that helps us resist and counter all this craziness that is impacting our young people. So up next, seminar. All right, folks, now it's time for today's seminar. Now, if you listen to our show, you know we have discussed issues around race and equity in education several times. And a lot of times when people talk about race in education or equity issues, they tend to think about the content or maybe school funding or maybe the students who are in our classrooms. But it's important not to lose sight of the fact that teachers' own identities have a huge impact in our everyday practice. So we wanted to have a discussion about teachers' identities and we thought of a fantastic guest who specializes in this discussion and has done a lot of work around teacher identity, and her name is Min Jung Pei. Min Jung Pei is a fifth and sixth grade teacher in Los Angeles whose practice is focused on social justice and progressive education. At her school site, she serves on the board of trustees, the diversity leadership team, and the social justice anti-bias curriculum task force. Outside of her school, 
Min Jong is a Heinemann Fellow, a member of the UCLA Writing Project Leadership Team, and a board member for Southern California People of Color at Independent Schools. She has presented multiple workshops at the National Association of Independent Schools People of Color Conference and joins us today to discuss the work she has done around teachers' personal identity work. Welcome to All the Above, Min. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. So I saw a piece that you wrote for Heinemann and uh, it's entitled Identity Work and Educational Justice. We'll for sure link that on our website for folks to check out. And can we begin with just the discussion around what do you mean by teachers' identity and identity work? It's such a big question and that's part of the research that I'm doing um, for my Heinemann Fellowship. Just kind of the truncated elevator pitch version would mm -hmm. be the understanding that at the core of who I am is my personality, right? It's what makes me unique, it's what makes me me. And then what are all the group identities that I've been socialized into, whether it's my race, my gender, my religion, my geographic location, and how do those all interact to form who I am and how others interact with me? And also how does that impact how I walk the world, right? And especially for me as a teacher, how does it impact my teaching and my pedagogy? Super short version. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Min, uh, you know, I think there's a lot in what you just said uh, mm -hmm. for us to unpack. And I'm wondering uh, about, you know, for teachers who maybe are not doing the kind of identity work that, uh, that you just described, um, what are the consequences of mm -hmm. us not paying attention to the ways in which the identities we've been socialized into mm -hmm. are present in the classroom? Um, you know, what have you seen or what, you know, what are you working to interrupt there that might be interesting for us to hear about? Um, I think if I can just kind of premise my answer to your question a little bit, just to backtrack, mm -hmm. uh, the reason why I got so passionate about personal identity work for teachers was I was getting really honestly angry about teachers just taking on all this new content, quote unquote, diverse content, mm -hmm. and then all this harm being done in the classroom, whether it's slavery enactments, um, lunch counter reenactments, uh, their biases coming through with how they're teaching these different representations in the books, uh, and also in interacting with my colleagues, my white colleagues, or just friends that I meet out. Uh, folks always just asking me, well, what is it like for you? So me mm. always having to explain my experience as a woman of color right. uh, with another white person when that white person has not done any work into discovering how they have been ra racialized. Uh, so that's kind of the origin story of how I started this work, and in, in, which kind of answers your question. And it just, to me, it's, it's irresponsible of teachers not to understand themselves fully uh, in how they engage in the work with their students, whether it's relationship building, whether it's teaching the content, whether it's assessing the content, whether it's interacting with the parents. Uh, I think all of it comes together. And I think of Bell Hooks and what she calls uh, for teachers and teaching to tra transgress, mm -hmm. self-actualization, that teachers need to have, that that needs to be a goal uh, in addition to mastering content. Um, so, yeah. Does yeah. that answer your question? I think it does. Yeah. I'm, I am, so Manuel and I are both, uh, you know, well, Manuel is a high school social studies teacher. Mm -hmm. I was a high school social studies teacher. And I think um, my sense of the kind of like uh, broad discourse about mm -hmm. these issues is that people often think about, well, let's talk about these complex historical issues of oppression. Mm -hmm. 
in a sort of high school context. So mm -hmm. I'm very curious as an elementary educator, mm -hmm. um, how you maybe navigate the waters of uh, bringing younger students mm -hmm. into these same conversations. And if you've experienced any pushback from people that have maybe said things like, you know, well, they're too young mm -hmm. to, to learn about these horrible things of mm -hmm. our of our right. past. It's gonna, you know, mm -hmm. take their innocence or mm -hmm. something, right? So, yeah. Well, I mean, first, research has shown that students or children notice these differences uh, as young as three years old or younger, right? And that they place value on those differences as young as three years old, right? So I think that they're too young is more a reflection on the adult's uh, discomfort in engaging in that work with younger children. Right? And I have a good friend of mine, Monique Marshall, who's an elementary school teacher at Wildwood Elementary, and she teaches this wonderful workshop for teachers called Never Too Young, and it's about engaging young, young folks in the social justice work as young as kindergarten. Right? So I'm kind of tired of that mm -hmm. argument of children being too young, especially when there are children from really historically marginalized and disenfranchised groups whose reality is this. And they're not too young to experience that reality. They're not too young mm -hmm. to live those lives. Uh, so to me, it's so just out of touch and the epitome of um, intentional privilege, right? And intentional engagement and perpetuating of the oppressive status quo to say that their children are too young to engage in this work. That's one. Uh, in terms of pushback at my school, I'm very fortunate and I'm personally very privileged to work in an independent school whose philosophy is rooted in progressive pedagogy. And a lot of my own personal identity work started at the school with the resources and the professional development that they mm -hmm. provided me. So I haven't reached, uh, haven't had too much impact on negative pushback on this. And with the students, at least in fifth and sixth grade, they're so ready. I remember the first time that I started teaching civil rights units and teaching about oppression and teaching about personal identity, the students were just like wanting to dig in and gain concrete information about what is racism. Because in their brains, because I teach at a predominantly white institution, and in their brains they've been taught racism is bad, right? I don't want right. to be a racist. And they had no knowledge of what that really meant. Hmm. So I just remember even the one lesson where we're going, around, uh, going over vocabulary words of racism, systemic racism, racist, prejudice, all those words. And there were so many questions because the students were just hungry to be like, oh, I, I need to know what this is. Like, and trying to disengage them from the idea of good, bad binary in that process was really exciting. And they really um, were engaged and focused and wanted to know more. And their curiosity was there too, because it also gave them an access point. Right. It was so accessible to them to think, oh, I don't have to be this unattainable hero like figure of virtue. Oh, this is work for all of us. This is human work. This is relationship work. This is work to understand myself. Right. And for me, it can start in kindergarten with it's so developmentally appropriate to start with the understanding of self. Where does my family come from in my classroom? Oh, let's look at the differences within our, our group, our class. And then to progress it up into sixth grade where we can start talking about the historical context of it, right? Yeah. Man, that's, yeah. that's really, really dope. I'm thinking back to my own elementary education and the teachers that I had, who, mm -hmm. you know, I love them. They're, they're, they're fine teachers, but we weren't on anything, anything near any of that. So that's, that's extremely dope. I definitely want to check that out uh, for myself. So think back, thinking back to when you first entered the classroom to mm -hmm. where you are now, how, how has your journey for mm -hmm. your own personal identity work, how has that impacted the, what's actually um, going on in your classroom? 
it's been transformational, like yeah. a huge paradigm shift. I think of the quote from Lerone Bennett Jr. where it says an educator in a system of oppression is either an oppressor or a revolutionary. Mm. I was an oppressor. Like I was just, I was completely unaware of the oppressive practices that I was continuing on because that's just the way I was trained. Right? So even right. things like something that seems so innocuous as reading logs uh, to getting those parent signatures, to me with the classroom culture asking for compliance. You know, right. year two, I started thinking about why am I quashing these wonderful qualities of questioning and critique from my students so that they follow some classroom norms that in the end really don't mean anything and hold no value for them when they leave my classroom, right? right? Uh, and this was a long journey for me to get there. There's a lot of shame and guilt built in, and that's why I think personal identity work is so important also. And to borrow a term from Shaquille Chowdhury, uh, there has to be some sort of psychological literacy going on uh, for us to understand ourselves. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we continuing those practices? What are we afraid of when we want to co-create and share power with our students? Um, and it also went into what content do I really want to teach? What's my intention behind that content? How much time am I putting into this content? Is it just one special unit during February? Right. Because right, that sends a message too to students, whether I say it explicitly or not. Or is it throughout and integrated throughout the whole entire school year? Right? Do I practice cultural norms, uh, guidelines in the classroom with my students? I used to come up with classroom rules together at the beginning of the year, like many teachers do. Right? Right. And I totally connect to and agree with the philosophy behind it to empower the students. And at least for me, when I was practicing it, I was leading the discussion to get them to rules that I wanted them to have. Right. And they were so big and abstract. Respect each other, right? Respect your bodies, respect your right. words, respect your materials. And it was so abstract that when problems or conflicts would arise in the classroom, we would point to those guidelines and they didn't have any connection to the students. And in all honesty, they didn't have any connections to me because they didn't really see me practice them in concrete ways with them. So I started using uh, the multicultural guidelines, which are from Visions and Dr. Valerie Batts, because I use them in workshops with teachers. Right? I have used them in staff meetings with teachers. So I practice them every day. So I brought those into the classroom and now I see the students using them in their interactions with their peers. I hear back from parents like, yo, my, my child was saying that's you're not being aware of impact. You're only focusing on intent. You know, so these are real life guidelines that I also practice, that adults practice, that of course that I want my students to practice with me as we're building our classroom culture together. That was a really long-winded way to kind of share. Dope, all dope. <laughs> all dope. And I will say that's the second time now on mm -hmm. All the Above that we've had a uh, Lerone Bennett Jr. Um, uh, representation on the show. So uh, props, <laughs> uh, men, for bringing it back. About a year ago, we had uh, mm -hmm. a show and tell with uh, Lerone, Janet, uh, Lerone Bennett's uh, Before the Mayflower, which wow. was my high school African-American history class textbook or one of a couple of textbooks in the class so um anyways that was a long-winded uh, yeah. response as well but um so i think you said a lot there and i'm very curious uh because i i think you are the principles behind your approach and philosophy to me seem very clear and very um you know very driven by uh by uh, a sense to really confront and interrupt inequity mm -hmm. in a lot of ways um, but you also mentioned doing this in a context where you're teaching mostly 
white students mm -hmm. and um, at an independent school I can imagine there's also a, a mostly more affluent mm -hmm. um, student group that you're teaching mm -hmm. so uh, tell us a bit about like doing this work in mm -hmm. that context which I can imagine some folks might think is kind of like you know being behind enemy lines and, <laughs> and being subversive right so yeah. talk about that. I mean, kind of connected to the previous question you just asked me of like, how is this personal identity work impacting my teaching? I had to let go a lot of that whole white savior complex too as a teacher uh, and realize that's not the community I come from. That's not the community that had the most impact. And that's not only where the work needs to happen, right? The work needs to happen concurrently in these white privileged affluent spaces too. And I know that I come in a package that's really palatable to that community. So that's where uh, my passion is and that's where I feel like I can do the most effective work. And it, it's important, right? It's just, uh, just said as an analogy, not that it's completely the same, but I'm thinking about um, sexual harassment and misogyny and sexism, right? It's not women's work, right? It's men's work that needs to be done. So when we're looking at systemic racism, the real, the big community that needs to do the work to impact that change in terms of power dynamics is the white privileged community, right? So I think it's extremely important to do that work there. Uh, in terms, like I said, my school, like this is part of their philosophy and there's a huge initiative uh, to make sure that we're doing that work in an intentional way and naming that we have a white community, right? Um, and then also to be able to break it down in concrete ways so it's not something so abstract and far away uh, that, uh, you know, look, like oppression happens on the four levels. It happens on my individual level. It happens interpersonally. It also happens culturally and also happens institutionally. And at least in my experience, when we start talking about racism, folks want to just focus here individually and what's happening here, right? I'm not racist. I didn't mean that, right? You're taking it the wrong way. And whereas if we want to really impact change on a school-wide level, well, let's look at the culture. Who's included? Whose voices are included here? Institutionally, what are the policies going on here? Who's making the hiring decision? Who's making the curriculum decisions? Who has uh, decision-making power, right? What does the culture say about how the parents interact with each other and who's included, right? So to be able to do that work and to be a part of a community that's invested in doing that work is great. And of course, we, I'm sure we get pushback, but that's one of the things I love about being a classroom teacher, right? <laughs> Where I can kind of say to my, my administrators, <laughs> like, yeah. yo, I need your partnership now, yeah. right? Like I can do the work I need to do with the parents in my classroom and with my students, but I need to center my students. So if the parent pushback comes in too much where it's decentering what's needed, from a student perspective, then that's when I can be in partnership with my administrators. And I'm really lucky that our administrator uh, identifies as a white anti-racist, right? So she has uh, the skills and the capacity and the knowledge and her own personal experience to engage with folks. And she often thinks about the ra white racial formation theory and think about what, what stage is this person at and how can I engage them? Um, so that this work really isn't about like, I'm an expert or, you know, ooh, somebody, I'm like this equity magic person wizard. And I feel like some people think that, like, how do you do that? It's so far away. And it's no, it's actually concrete steps and frameworks that you set up and we educate and we just have to roll up our sleeves and get in the work and be ready to make mistakes and be ready to take action and be ready to take step, a step back and reflect and think about, okay, what's the best way to move forward instead and be intentional about the work and be transparent about the work also. Yeah. yeah. So we know that 
the context within which you are you are teaching is not necessarily reflective of the rest of our state of California. Mm -hmm. So Ed Trust West recently reported that uh, across California, 77% of students are students of color and 35% of teachers are teachers of color. So mm -hmm. um, statewide and nationally, we're looking at a predominantly white teaching force mm -hmm. with predominantly students of color. So what is this personal identity work? What do you think it looks like in that larger context of mostly white teachers mm -hmm. with predominantly students of color? I think it's imperative. I think so much harm has been done and continues to be done because this is not a part of teacher training and teacher professional development. Right. I think administrators have to come on board. I think it needs to come on board as part of the requirements to get your credentials, especially in California. Uh, it can't be just a one-off class of the quote-unquote diversity class that we take yeah. in our teacher training. I'm starting to get hot. I'm starting yeah. to get super passionate <laughs> about this yeah. work. Um, because when, to me, I really and like want to implore uh, the white community out there is to really understand how have you been racialized? And I think it's hard. It's hard work. It's emotional work, and it's necessary work, and it's liberating work. Right. Like to redefine whiteness, redefine the white identity, uh, find uh, role models, white role models who do the anti-racist work, because the work that white anti-racists do is going to look different from what people of color do. And I know the work that I do as an Asian American woman is going to be different from what the work of black educators would do. And I need to make sure that I'm conscious of those nuances and stay in that context and make that framework as wide and as true as possible to be able to impact change that's not just about little fixes here and there, but that is really shifting the oppressive systems in a way that's meaningful and that's going to nurture and affirm our students in a way that they can change the world, right? Because that's, that's ultimately what I want to do as a teacher. So I want to empower students to reimagine in ways that I can't. Mm. And how am I going to do that if I'm not starting the work here? And I have such gratitude I think gratitude is such a small word for the elders in this work, right? That I just don't have an excuse anymore. The work that they went through, the sacrifices that they made uh, to make it possible for me to be a teacher, right? To make it possible for me to interact with other folks. I have to, I, it's like, there's no, I have to do it, right? And then so for me, hopefully with the students that leave the classroom and go out into the world, they'll feel the same way and they'll be empowered to reimagine it in ways that we can't think of. Yeah. So if I am a member of our audience and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in what you're, you have to say and I want to you know, take, take some steps down this path of doing the identity work you're naming, um, you know, what would you share with people as maybe some advice or guidance on kind of how to get going? Mm -hmm. And um, in particular, maybe if there are folks who are who are maybe not in as like fertile soil mm -hmm. as it sounds like you're in yeah. with a like white anti-racist like person with that sign on the door in the principal's yeah. office. Yeah, I mean, don't get it twisted. I deal with a lot of white fragility, too. And I'm grateful for the people in my community who are white anti-racist. Um, one, I would just say let go of perfectionism. That's something that I constantly struggle with, uh, and I find myself when I'm hitting a wall of taking action or if I'm really stressed, I realize it's because I'm putting this burden of perfectionism on myself, which is a character was a characteristic of white supremacy culture, right? Unless it's perfect, it shouldn't be done. It has no value, right? So to let go of perfectionism, to allow yourself to be a learner, right? So to take on that mental 
the framework of what is it that I expect of my students. I don't expect perfection from my students. I expect my students to try on, to lean into their discomfort, to take risks, to make mistakes. And then, oh, and I know as an educator, taking those risks and making those mistakes is where true learning happens. So why wouldn't I want that for myself also? That would be number one. Uh, number two, for me, this work happens in community, right? So to find your folks in whatever way that you can, whether it's reaching out to your local universities and seeing their teacher ed programs. There's so many good work, so much good work going on at universities that was not happening 15, 20 years ago when I was going through teacher ed programs. Um, if you can find affinity groups in where you're at, please find one. There's a lot of good work going on there. And also to do your own individual work and read. There's so much work out there, especially by black feminists that I know that's truly impacted my work. I say read Audre Lorde, read Bell Hooks, right? Um, I'm also thinking about James Baldwin, right? Uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum is a huge hero of mine. There's, it's a simple Google search, it'll come up for you, right? Uh, yeah, and to be sensitive about trying to engage people of color, if you're a white person, to engage people of color in that work, is that this work is so relational and it's about building relationships and trust to let go the expectation that somebody owes me something, right? And I try to think about that in my interactions with students too. I have to build a trust with my students first. They don't owe me any of their story, mm. right? It's, are we gonna build a relationship so that you feel safe enough to let me get to know you fully so I can be there for you in community. And so I urge teachers when you're engaging across difference to build that relationship too. Yeah. Great, so, so there's a lot there and very, very, very um, thankful for that. I know our audience is. Um, and of course it can't just be done through personal and individual efforts. Mm -hmm. You know, we need more support. You referenced uh, a little while ago about um, looking at teacher ed programs and having more than just that one race class that you know is that one class when mm -hmm. you walk in and, and a lot of folks already have their mind made up on, on what they're gonna get from the class or what have you. Um, what more needs to be done to support this type of personal identity work um, and help get more teachers nationally to mm -hmm. engage in this work? That's when it goes outside of my area yeah. of expertise, <laughs> right? Because uh, for me, first and foremost, I'm a classroom teacher, Right. even though I feel like I'm being nudged out of the classroom a little bit to mm. engage on a bigger, uh, bigger community. Uh, I would, if I, so if, as a classroom teacher, if I'm thinking about how can I make impact on a bigger scale like Manuel's talking about, what would I start to do? If I frame the question that way for myself, I think one, it's analyze the school that I'm at, mm. right? Where, what's the power dynamics at my school? You know, who has the decision-making power? Because sometimes it's not necessarily the principal or the head of school. Right. It can be the veteran teacher who has the most experience. Right. Uh, so the, the two questions that I ask myself is what is my sphere of influence and what is my uh, sphere of power? Mm -hmm. And then after I decide that I start making change in those spheres, I also then ask myself, do I want to widen these spheres and how can I do that? And it's about knowing your own. It's so place based too. it's understanding your own school, your own district. Uh, it's a lot of labor. Right? It's about, and it's a lot of free labor. It's about going out and putting, I had to put myself out there to make connections across schools. I had to go out there and uh, be willing to engage in the work with the administration. 
Um, and it's like, what are you willing to do in order to educate yourself about what's going on in your community? I wish I had more concrete answers than that. No, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a lot right there. And, and when you uh, refer to yourself as a classroom teacher in that sphere, um, widening or considering um, the widening, if I'm not mistaken, your sphere of influence has, has widened considerably through the work you've been doing through the Heinemann Fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think the podcast that I've listened to where you've uh, spoken to different uh, educators who are doing their own personal identity work has been very helpful for myself and understanding sort of what my path might look like um, in my own personal identity work. And of course, you've also written and, and we're going to have all those links on our website. Um, but tell us a little bit about about that work. So uh, like I shared earlier, my I was just so angry, yeah. <laughs> to be completely honest, about folks continuing to do this work. And that's when the Heinemann Fellowship uh, kind of came into my world and I applied for it and I got it. Uh, and the premise is basically each teacher can do their own action research plan. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be honest with you all, like I had no expertise, no knowledge in this. All I knew was that I was angry about it. Right. And so that's how I decided, okay, so then this is what I want to uh, form my research around because I was passionate about it. Mm. Um, and then so right now I'm currently working with two teachers at my school as case studies and we did a year long just focusing on personal identity work, no curriculum. Um, we read uh, White Fragility together. They're both white teachers. Uh, we went through some uh, professional development workshops together. We had monthly meetings together and just tried to really dig in um, and be in community with that personal identity work. In year two now, um, we are now planning together and I want to go in and do observations with them and support them and how does that show up in your classroom. And what was great about the Heinemann Fellowship also is that part of the fellowship is how can we engage the outside educator community um, in the work and share it. And one of that ways through blogs and podcasts. And so when I first heard that podcast was a possibility, mm -hmm. I was just so excited because there were so many people out there that I wanted to engage in conversation with. So the first two people that I thought of were people in my community, teachers that I really respected, that I learned from, who I know are, uh, who are deep in this work. And then it was just, I don't know where the audacity came from, but I just started reaching out to folks that I admired, whether it's seeing their YouTube video or being in their workshop. And folks have been so generous and just say, said yes and engaged me in conversation for about an hour for the podcast. So it's great nice. to hear that you enjoyed it. Nice. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right, folks, we are just about at the end of our seminar. And I know some members of our audience might be familiar with the great uh, DJ Funkmaster Flex. And Funkmaster Flex is known for dropping what are called flex bombs all over our track whenever something particularly <laughs> dope is said or happens. In flex we trust. Keeping it 100. And if Funkmaster Flex were to look at what Min has shared, there will be flex bombs all over it because he has <laughs> dropped so many, so many bombs um, of just great, great, great information. Um, we thank you so much you. for sharing. Yeah, we encourage our audience to definitely um, reach out and, and listen to her podcast, look at what she's written, and um, we'll throw the links on our website, but um, you could they could find you on, on Twitter. Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? At Minfucius. <laughs> At Minfucius. We'll nice. put that on our website too. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was fun. Definitely.
All right, folks, it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to shout out people doing wonderful things in our schools across the country. And today's Class Dismissed, well, it's the holiday season, Jeff, and holidays for a lot of people um, are, are a period where you're reminded of the, the magnitude and importance of giving and thinking about others. And there is an eighth grader in Louisiana who we want to shout out because he has been doing this since the start of the school year. So 15-year-old, not 15, he's only 13, 13-year-old Chase Neeland Square. And if you're listening to the podcast, Chase Neeland Square, you might have a visual image of what Chase might look like. And um, I recommend you go to our site and click on the link because um, Chase might not look how you might be picturing. Um, he's not wearing a uh, cardigan or one of those fancy private school He's not on, a, on a yacht in, he's the, not, in the bay. He's not on a yacht with his, uh, his boat <laughs> shoes and all that. But in any case, uh, this 13-year-old who is an eighth grader in Louisiana, um, he opened up a supply closet at his middle school, a closet full of clothes and school supplies for students at his school who might be in need of those materials. Chase is doing this out of the kindness of his heart, taking time out to make sure that everybody at his school has what they need to be happy and healthy in, uh, in their school. Uh, Jeff, tell us a little bit more about Chase. Yeah, so I love this story, mm. and uh, Chase, I want to give serious props to you and your your family, your community out there, because because uh, this is just one of those heartwarming stories, right, of a kid yeah. who's doing something nice, and I especially love it because he's a middle schooler, yeah. and the world needs more nice things in middle <laughs> school and kids being nice to one another. Uh, and so it's just a beautiful example of that. So the school that he goes to, which is Port Allen Middle School in Louisiana, apparently it's in the Baton Rouge uh, sort of general metropolitan mm -hmm. area. And, uh, you know, this is just an example of a kid who is saying, I see a need. I want to try to do something about it and working with the adults to help bring some, you know, some happiness to people. So Chase has said that he runs this pantry, he calls it a pantry, because I believe the stu that students shouldn't be bullied or categorized, categorized based on what they have on. Um, so I, I just think that's great, right? Um, this is a small school. They have just over 200 students. So everyone kind of knows each other, right? And, right? and we've all been in middle school. We know that it, it can be tough getting yeah. talked about or made fun of because of your shoes or your shirt or whatever. Uh, and he's, he's trying to help in the way that he can, right? And, and I love that, that story. Um, Chase also, you know, was featured on Good Morning America, a bunch of local TV interviews. Um, and he has said um, he's given credit to where he kind of gets this giving spirit mm -hmm. from to his mom. Um, and he says, she's made me realize uh, some people aren't as blessed to have all the things that he has, right? So I love it. Keep yeah. it up, Chase. It's a, it's a great story. We need more chases and fewer um, CEOs of e-cigarettes exactly. and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will say, though, also, Manuel, that uh, Chase speaking about his mom, um, of course, makes me think about something because standing about five feet over there <laughs> is my mom, who's, uh, who's joined us in the studio today. So Indeed. I want to give a, a special shout out to, uh, to my mom, Susan, who flew in all the way from, uh, from Minnesota. Um, who's here joining us. She's our, our original fan uh, mm -hmm. here on All of the Above. Uh, and uh, she's she stuck with us for three years. And yeah. uh, here we are. She finally made it to the studio. So welcome, welcome, Mom. 
All right, folks, that does it for this episode. And as Jeff just mentioned, we've been at this for roughly three years. So if you are new to our show, please visit our website, aotashow.com. See all the previous episodes because we've had so many wonderful, wonderful guests and we've discussed so many wonderful issues and, and all of them are continue to be timely and pressing. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thank you for listening. We will see you soon.